Lord God, just pray that, Lord, Hebrews would just be as familiar and understandable to us today as it was to those that read it 2,000 years ago. Lord, those that understood the temple, that understood the tabernacle, that understood the priestly role and the sacrifices and the need for the blood. And Lord, all of those things, God, that are so foreign to us in Prineville, Lord, that your spirit would just, Lord, bring it to life tonight. Show it to be alive to us tonight, God. Lord, that we would just relish and cherish the truth just of uh, our true and better high priest with a true and better covenant and a true and better sanctuary administered by true and better offerings. Lord, just let the truths of Hebrews 9 resound in our hearts, Lord. In a day and age where just men rely upon external factors to provide atonement for sin, Lord. We want to just come afresh tonight and just cry out, only the blood of Jesus cleanses all of my sin. Lord, show us how true that is this evening in the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, let's go ahead and open up the word to Hebrews chapter 9. I want to know, what is the hubbub about? From chapters 5 through chapters 10, the apostle has been speaking of the priesthood of Christ and comparing it with the priesthood of the Old Covenant, uh, the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, as the Levites uh, came out of the tribe, or uh, came out of the loins of Aaron. And uh, so we have had these compare and contrasts all throughout the book of Hebrews to show that Jesus is supreme and he's better uh, hopefully you guys remember, you could practically go through the list with me tonight, that Jesus is better than the prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus is better than the angels uh, for two reasons. What's the first reason he's better? Because he's God and he created the angels. Boom, better. Uh, secondly, because he became a man and experienced what no angel ever experienced so that he might redeem man and be sympathetic towards man and be a high priest for men, sympathizing with our weakness now that he's died and rose again, he ever lives to pray for man. Angels can't do that, all right? He's better than the prophets. He's better than angels. Chapter three, he's better than Moses, all right? He's better than Moses. Why, Frank? Because he created... Moses, right? And the argument he uses is just like the builder of the house deserves more honor than the house, okay? Uh, he's better than, and then that gets us into chapter four, where he's better than, oh man, all these, all this time, what's wrong with me? Uh, oh, then we go into a little bit of a, a period there that his rest is the fulfillment of the rest in the old covenant and that the promise of rest remains for us today. Doesn't that sound good? That's so good. Man, Monday I was laying out in my pool. Yeah, we're fancy. Yeah, it's an above ground pool. Um, but it's just great. My mom gave it to me. It's great, mom. Okay. But I just didn't want you to think I was like, ooh, Richie. Yeah, we pastors. I was just laying in my pool and I was looking at Barnes Butte and just looking over the valley and just like, I, I had a little floaty and I was like, that's a, that's a thing you lay on in a pool. And as you lay there, 
I just was like, man, I'm not moving a muscle. I am resting. And then the Lord brought to mind Hebrews chapter four. There's a better rest and it's in Jesus. And it never ends even after you get out of the pool. All right, <laughs> better rest. And then he gets into chapters five through 10, how this Jesus's priesthood is better on all these different accounts than the Levitical priesthood, okay? Uh, and verse uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 8 says, this is the main point of what we've been saying from chapters 5 through till now. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So what's your point, dude, apostle, that we don't really know your name? Here's the point. We have a high priest. Even we Gentiles, non-Jews here. Rory Rogers, not a Jew. I have a high priest. His name is Jesus. And he's a minister of the sanctuary of the true and better tabernacle that the Lord made and not man. I have a priest. In chapter 8, we looked at last week, that tabernacle that Moses built served as just a copy or a shadow of the true and better tabernacle that's in heaven. We see that in verse 5. That's why God instructed Moses saying, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. Why did he have to do it just as the blueprint said? Because it was a copy of the better, the truer, the, the uh, fulfillment that is in heaven even as we speak. And so that gets us into chapter 9 tonight, how we look at this sanctuary and how it's a better, superior sanctuary. The old covenant had an inferior sanctuary. We're going to see tonight in verses 1 through 11. And if you've got a pen, you can just make a little bracket on the side of your margin of your Bible, 1 through 11. Old covenant, inferior sanctuary. And then verses... Uh, 10 and on, uh, we're going to be looking at this new uh, sanctuary and how it is completely adequate. Verses 1 through 5, uh, the, the first 10 verses, the inadequacy of the old covenant, and uh, it prepares us for the adequacy of the new covenant. Let's look at verse 1 together tonight. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. Okay, we've got just a few slides tonight. I like to just drop this on, Tina. What do you got? Do you got anything back there? Not a slideshow? Oh, white screens, huh? That's what my phone was showing. Okay, the Lord must not want us to have those tonight. That's okay. Tune in to Facebook for my slideshow presentation. <laughs> Wow, isn't that amazing? I know that's why you came out here tonight, is to see that slideshow. Awesome. I know, thank you. Anyone want to get saved? Okay, that might not be what leads you there. Okay, chapter 8 showed us the better covenant, that that first covenant had laws to service to God, and in that law to service to God, it had a sanctuary, all right? Uh, that old covenant sanctuary was earthly, okay? It was temporal. It was made with the hands of men. Verse 2 tells us a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. 
And, uh, and so just to get an idea of the tabernacle tonight, picture kind of a square, okay? Uh, and within the square was a tent, all right? Uh, some 30 feet long, about 20 feet wide, this tent called the tabernacle. But outside the square, kind of corralled uh, what, what was called the outer courts, okay? So whenever you would enter into the tabernacle, you would go through what's called the outer courts. Within the outer courts, uh, it was just animals being slaughtered. There was a giant basin full of water that the priests would wash themselves with. There was uh, an altar where the sacrifices were burnt upon for the burnt offerings. There were all kinds of posts outside where, you know, carcasses were hanging. There was blood everywhere. Uh, it, was, it was neatly and in order, but there was blood everywhere. We're going to see that tonight in our Hebrews text. Uh, and then as you went up to the actual structure of the tent, you'd go through those front doors and in the front doors was what was called the sanctuary or the holy place. And in this kind of first room, it was a big foyer. Uh, it, you would go in to like a narthex, if you will. My limited vocabulary knows that a, a room outside, inside foyer, narthex, whatever. Um, in that room would be the lampstand. A symbol of the Holy Spirit and so much more, the table uh, of showbread, as well as the altar of incense. And then as you would go through, uh, there would be another giant veil. And uh, in past that veil was what was called the uh, holiest of all or the holy of holies. This giant veil divided the holy place from the Holy of Holies. It, it divided where priests could all go to where only one priest could go once a year, okay? That Holy of Holies was, uh, it was the set-apart area in the tabernacle. As you look at Exodus 26, 31 through 35, if you're quick, flip back there. It's only the second book of the Bible, so it's kind of easy to get to. Exodus 26, 31, tells us about this veil. Don't worry, I know we're talking about fabric right now, and that would make any man shut down, but it's all for a good purpose here. You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. You shall hang it on the four pillars of acacia and wood, or of acacia wood, overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the Ark of the Testimony in there. Kind of like the way they put that. In there. <laughs> you should bring it in there. Behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat upon the Ark of the Testimony in the most holy. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south, and you shall put the table on the north side. So it just kind of gives us a little idea of what the inside of the tabernacle looked like. Verse 4, um, <clears throat> this uh, holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy place. Uh, oh, forgive me. Verse 3, verse 2. Oh, I skipped verse 3. It's not blue. That's why. Verse 3 says, Behind that second veil, 
the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all. Verse 4. We're back in Hebrews, by the way. Sorry if I'm confusing you. You can just tell when it's like really quiet. <laughs> and you hear like one Bible page flipping over here. It's like someone's like. Okay, sorry, my bad. Still got a little bit of a head cold. It's making me an airhead here. Sorry. Holy Spirit, help me. Okay. Verse 4, Hebrews chapter 9. You there, Kayla? Okay, good. Says this, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak. Uh, so what we have here is uh, this incredible, beautiful picture of the inside of the holy place. Uh, the artwork that I had on my slideshow that didn't come through, that's okay. But you got to understand, the gold that was uh, shown here, just whatever we could have on this earth that could help kind of shine and point us to heaven, it was used there. It was used there to, to kind of picture the glory of God with these angels on top of like a box chest type structure. Uh, it, it's all a picture of what we see in Revelation. Now, this author of Hebrews, these first five verses, he tells all this tabernacle stuff. And at the end of verse five, he says, of these things, we cannot now speak of in detail. So I, I take a note of that not to get into it right now. Because that wasn't the point of what the author of Hebrews wanted to get into. Because, man, I'm telling you, we did a whole week-long fasting just reading about this stuff. And we could do a radical study how it all points to Jesus in a great way. In about 20 years, we'll be there and we'll be doing that. So look forward to it with you guys by the time we finish the New Testament. But, um, but the author just says, hey, there's a Bible study here that we're not getting into right now. And I want to I wanna kind of glean from that. But something that we do see is uh, this is something that, it, that is perfected in the heavenly sanctuary. All right? Everything you see here that's like made out of badger pelts and acacia wood and golden rings and gold and uh, linen and scarlet and this and that. It's like, okay... This is the best we got in our wilderness wanderings to make this out of. And it's all, do it according to plan. But I'm just telling you, it's all just a copy, copy machine, Xerox copy, right, of what is in heaven. Okay, so don't get focused on this. Get focused on this, all right? Check it out. There's a true and better this to, to focus upon. That's what the author is telling these Hebrew people that are considering leaving Jesus Christ and going back to Judaism and going back to all of this, uh, the elements of the Jewish, Jewish religion. He's saying, don't do it. That's just a Xerox of, of what Jesus has to offer you. And when we read the book of Revelation, uh, chapters 4 and 5, you have this scene of the throne room of heaven. And what do you have? You have... Uh, angels that have wings, cherubim and seraphim, and they're just flying and they're, they're hovering near the presence of the Lord. And what are they doing? They're crying out and they're worshiping uh, God. They're crying out, holy, holy, holy. And then we see this beautiful scene in chapter five where, uh, you know, John is given a scroll with seven seals. Some scholars believe it's, a, it's the title deed to earth. 
And, it, and the question is asked, who can open these seven seals? And no one is found in earth or on, on, on above the earth or under the earth. No one can open these, the scroll and the seven seals. And John begins to weep. He begins to weep. No one can do it. And then an angel says, hey, hold on. Here comes the hero. And he looks up and here comes one who who's like, looks like a lamb that had been slain. And he comes and he takes the scroll and he opens the seals. And it just causes the heavens to worship. And what do we see there? We see a picture of the Ark of the Covenant with cherubim and their wings pointing inward. And we see in the middle of the ark, the throne of God known as the mercy seat in the Old Testament, where the blood of bulls and the blood of calves was to be spilt as a sacrifice by the great high priest. But whose blood is it that's there in the heavens on the mercy seat? As the angels are worshiping, here comes the lamb that was slain. His blood's not there. He's there. He already shed his blood. It's all a picture of him. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Um, all those things are just the copy or the shadow of the heavenly things. But we can't speak of all the, the earthly stuff in detail. But it's good. We don't want to worry about the stuff that we wouldn't understand now. We want to understand, we want to worry about the things that we do understand. The things that God is telling us, hey, want you to major in these majors here. Don't major in the minors, major in the majors right here. And the major to major in is that Jesus is superior. Jesus is better. So let's look at that. In verses 6 through 10, we see that the old covenant sacrifice. And within that, the limitations of all the earthly service that took place. And the old covenant sacrifice, access into God's presence was regulated. It was restricted. We see that in verses 6 and 7. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. Remember I told you, when you got up to the tent, the priests would go in and there's a lampstand and there's the table of showbread and there's the altar of incense and there's the wash basin. And as they would go in there, uh, they would do their thing every day. They would do that, right? They would go and they would serve. But then there's that big veil and it's always just kind of taunting and tempting saying, you want to go in here, but you can't. All right. You can't. You never will. But God wasn't saying hardy, har, har. He was saying, wait for it. Wait for it. There is a way in here. Verse 7 says, into that second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So the priests would take care of the services in the holy places, but the high priest, he went into the holy of holies once a year, and it was after he made sacrifice for his own sins and for those sins of the people. One had to have a VIP pass to get in. And sadly, it was only one, and he went in by himself. We like to share big experiences, all right? That's why Facebook was invented, so we could share every little thing about our life every second. Um, I just shaved my face. Thought you all wanted to know. You know, I just went out into the garage. Thought you'd want to know. I just, I just, we're pretty narcissistic with our Facebook posts, aren't we? I fall into that myself, right? Uh, but we want to share things. High priest couldn't share that. That was... Only him, all by himself, VIP pass, hanging around his neck as he went past the veil, access, and it was one time a year. 
And because there was only one guy that could do that, what do you think the rest of the people thought of this guy? <laughs> right? Like, you're the man. You dumb man. You're the man. You get to go in there. You're like our mediator, man. Like, you're it. And people would fall into this high priest worship. Even today, people are unaware that there's freedom. There's freedom to go in all the time, and not by the high priest, but for every worshiper. We get to go into that holy place, and we're going to see why. Why do we get to go in? Why does Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 say that we can have boldness now to enter the holiest place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh? You guys remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross and it got dark and an earthquake happened and in the temple, what happened? What happened in the temple there? Yeah, about like three quarters of a mile away on the same hill he was on, this earthquake is shaken and guys are in there. It's the beginning of the Sabbath. Okay, it's just starting. People are getting ready and prepared to do their Sabbath thing. And this veil rips completely by this earthquake, from top to bottom. Now, if you were a Jew and you were in there and like all of a sudden you're looking at the cherubim, you're afraid for your life, right? You're like, <laughs> we're not supposed to go in there. And they weren't, they, they shouldn't. <laughs> but someone made it available. Someone ripped that veil and we see in Hebrews what was ripped was the veil of Jesus' flesh. That's what was ripped that made the ripping of the linen veil possible. This is revolutionary for us and for the Hebrews who got this letter. Before, there was one guy who went in once a year, and before he went, he was sacrificing for himself and for the sins of the other people. Now, in 2013, it's not one guy that gets to go in it's every single person who would believe in the one whose veil was torn, the veil of his flesh. The author wants people to know that we can walk in and we can sit down in the presence of God and we can do something that was very dangerous to do some 2,000 years ago. What he did as our high priest is incredible. Who he is is vital to what he did. Jesus isn't just one option in like a whole buffet of religious experiences. Jesus has fulfilled the longing of every person's heart to be near to God once again. To have the fellowship of the garden restored and to walk with God in the cool of the day. Something to note real quick in this verse still is that the high priest would make sacrifices for the sins of people that were committed in what? Ignorance. What does that mean? That means like, hey, I'm making it, I'm going in for you guys, right? I'm going in, I made a sacrifice for my own sin and for your sins, but I'm only making a sacrifice for the sins that you don't know you did or you didn't do on purpose. See you guys. And he goes on in. And what are you thinking? I sort of did a few sins this year on purpose. <laughs> I know that I did them. And I knew when I was doing them that I shouldn't have done them. 
That's what I'd be thinking. But this was a sacrifice only for the ones done in ignorance. There's hope. There's hope. Verse 8 tells us the Holy Spirit was indicating something. That the way into the holiest of all was not yet manifest while that first tabernacle was still standing. That way to get in there, back then, it wasn't made manifest. Verse 9 tells us it was all symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regards to the conscience, concerned only with food and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. So, first of all, the priest himself was only partially and temporarily cleansed. His innards, his inside, his heart, his conscience, it wasn't clean. He still had a guilty feeling. Not to mention everyone who knew that the uh, sacrifice that was made was only for those sins committed in ignorance. And so their conscience was guilty. The priest and the people, guilty consciences. Now, conscience is good. One man said, conscience is a faculty that we might understand the moral nature of God. It shows us that we have an innate sense of right and wrong. We are a moral being who can violate the conscience placed in us at creation. Our conscience causes us to feel guilty when we sin. Just think right now of that feeling. You know it. <laughs> I know it. We've known it since we were children. Children feel guilty. Why is it when they steal a cookie out of the cookie jar and they go and hoard it in their bedroom, they can't look you in the eye. They're like doing weird things. You know, we have this little toy kitchenette that we got Lainey and she like wants to put water in her sink. Okay. So she'll like, go get water, put it in. We'll go in there. Full sink, right? Dishes in it. <laughs> it's like, if you want to do dishes, be my guest. Right. And uh, I just came out of my bedroom a few days ago and like Lainey's kind of sitting there playing at her kitchenette and then just bombs out the door. Just like, Nothing's wrong, nothing's wrong. You know, it just goes out very innocently. And I, of course, I knew right away, right? And I walk in there, sink full of water, full of dishes, right? And it was like, Lainey, do you have something to tell me? Oh, no, no. What? You know, and four or three-year-old at the time, whose conscience was guilty. She knew she'd sinned. She'd known that she'd fallen short. The sound of my voice struck terror in her when normally it, it would bring joy. Whenever we have angst, it comes from our conscience. It's good though. It's good to acknowledge that our conscience is poking at us and telling us that we've sinned against God. You know, psychology of this day tries to externalize guilt. Blame it on everybody else around you. It's not your problem. And the scriptures say, no, you have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Don't blame it on your mommy or your daddy or anybody else. This is on you. You fell short. You need to humble yourself, confess your sin, and repent of your sin, and you'll be cleansed, and you'll be made new. This new covenant brings for this cleansing of the conscience 
Some of you might think that you have had your conscience cleansed apart from Jesus Christ. You think, no, I've been religious, I've got my conscience clean, and we'll do things like come to a, a service like this, and a song will be played that just stirs our emotions, and we'll get a happy feeling, and we'll think we're okay without ever coming to our high priest who cleanses us of our sin and cleanses us from a guilty conscience, and we will rather put our trust in a song that uplifted us and leave the place thinking we're okay, but when we go home and put our head on the pillow, the guilt is there again, all right? Now, two things need to happen. Number one, you need to fall at the feet of Jesus and allow him to cleanse you. And once you've done that at the feet of Jesus, you receive the cleansing by faith. So when the enemy comes and he tries to condemn you, he tries to accuse you, you can say, hey, I've got a lawyer. His name's Jesus, all right? And he's in heaven. Talk to him, okay? Because my conscience is clear. My conscience is clear. So our high priest provides that. It's something that the old covenant, it's something that the old priests, they could never provide that. And they provide it, Jesus provides it, excuse me, in a superior sanctuary. Within this superior sanctuary, there's a superior priest, there's a superior sanctuary, and there's a superior sacrifice. And you look at all this that I've just said, that, that the old covenant could never provide for the cleansing of the conscience, which is something everybody wants. Okay? You stand up amongst your peers and you say, I've got a solution that we can all have clean consciences. And they'll listen to you, tell you bring up the name Jesus. But everybody wants to know, how can I have this conscience cleansed? Tell me who to blame it on. What do we do? Enter in verse 11. But Christ came. I think it's the NIV that says, when Jesus came. Okay? So, dirty conscience, guilty conscience, whatever you'd say. Then Jesus came. But Christ came. As the high priest of the good things to come with the greater, underline it, and the more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So Jesus entered in heaven himself. He cried out, it is finished, and that cry was ratified when he walked into heaven. Raymond Brown says, he entered heaven as an outward visible sign that his eternal achievement was finished and complete. When Jesus came in, as high priest, there was a homecoming like there'd never been before. He had come. He had been an obedient servant. He laid down his life for the sins of the people after he lived a sinless life himself. And he rose from the dead in victory. And when he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, and he went behind in the clouds, it would have been a different story if he would have come thundering back down to the ground in a flash after he got booted back out. Different story, different New Testament written. But that's not what happened. He was received into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. A symbol, a visible sign that his eternal achievement was finished and complete. Romans 3.20 gives us a commentary on verse 11's phrase, but Christ came. So flip over there to Romans chapter 3 verse 20. It says, therefore by the deeds of the law, 
no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So by doing good works and maybe keeping the Ten Commandments, you won't be called innocent in God's sight. All that the law does is show you your sin. Verse 21, but now the rightness of God or the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the problem. But we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God's passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The commentary there in Romans 3.20, it, 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 it explains verse 11, that this man, after he was offered once as sacrifice for sins forever, he's the propitiation. He paid the ransom price to deliver us from the wrath of God that's upon every single person who's sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Moving on in Hebrews chapter 9, because we've... Uh, got 15 minutes left. We find ourselves at verse 12, which begins this idea that this new covenant sacrifice is better. Verse 12 tells us why. It's not with the blood of goats and calves, which is a big deal. If you've ever hunted or you've ever been a farmer and you've had to kill an animal, and you remember watching that blood pour from its veins. That's a somber moment, isn't it? When, you know, it's not, I mean, it's one thing when it is a scratch and it's like blood, you know. It's another thing when it's gushing out and life is pouring out of this animal. I don't mean to be sick, but the point is, even in the old covenant, the blood of bulls and the blood of goats was a big deal. But that's not what he came with. He came with his own blood, verse 12 says. And I just want you to know, we're going to get bloody here. Okay, not to be sick, not for shock value. The author uses the word blood here so many times, all right? It's with his own blood that he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So he entered into heaven, and now he entered into heaven by his own blood. Precious blood. Douglas Moo, great commentator, pretty hardcore, says, Blood shed is not a vehicle of power, but an evidence of death, especially by sacrifice or execution. Okay, so we sing, there's power in the blood, there's power in the blood, there's power in the blood of Jesus, right? Um, well, the power is actually that blood signified the death. The blood wasn't the means, one man said, that there was a manipulative, manipulative ingenuity, but the shed blood was evidence of death, especially a death that had come about by result of sacrifice or execution, Mu goes on, to give evidence of that death, the earthly priest 
took with him the blood of another victim. But as Christ was both priest and sacrifice, he presented only himself. I want to say that again. To give evidence of that death, the earthly priest took with him the blood of another victim. But as Christ was both priest and sacrifice, what did he take in with him? His self. Himself. That's what he took in there. That's the evidence of the victim. Not with his own blood, but by his own blood. He accomplished something on the cross and the presentation of himself in heaven and that great homecoming was the indication of the reality that blood was spilt at one moment of time. And 1 Peter, I quote it all the time from the pulpit because it's beautiful. 1 Peter 1.18 says, You were not redeemed with corruptible things. Okay? Silver or gold. It says, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. How were you purchased? How were you redeemed? How were you atoned? How were you bought as we looked last week off of the auction block of slavery to sin and to death? How were you purchased? Not with gold, not with silver, that stuff, that's nothing. You were bought with the blood of the Son of God. He, Isaiah says, was wounded for your transgressions. He was bruised for your iniquities. The correction or chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we were healed. By his whippings, by the marks on his body, we are healed of the sinful condition. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And he never opened his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, Isaiah says, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus doesn't enter the holiest place once a year, but he has entered it once for all. Not once a year, once for all, to make intercession for us and to show that he has sacrificed for sins. Not that he is sacrificing for sins, but that he has done that. As Zechariah says, I will remove the iniquity of a land or that land in one day. One day. Which leads us to the superior sacrifice. This one day sacrifice. This one day time. Verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean satisfies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more? What's the theme of Hebrews? He's better. All right. These, these phrases, how much more shall the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Can't sleep at night thinking about what you've done? Come to Jesus. Come to our high priest. His blood was shed so that your conscience can be clean. Rather than a superficial cleansing that just purifies the flesh, that's the old covenant. Verse 14 says that Jesus is now able to purge your conscience from all those dead works that you did so that you can now serve God. Serving God in the New Testament speaks of intimacy with God. Serving God is a beautiful, wonderful place to be. Under the old covenant, we were paroled. But under the new covenant, in Christ, we've been pardoned from our sin. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with God. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Speaking of all this sacrifice and all this blood, and it will be there in Hebrews 10. But it says, we can draw near now with a true heart and full assurance of our, fl- of our faith. And Hebrews 10.22 says this. Just close your eyes and listen to this. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Only the blood of Jesus does that. Cleansing us from a guilty conscience. Cleansing us. Cleansing us from an evil conscience. The Pharisees never had that. They were Jews of the Jews. In Matthew 23, Jesus rebukes them and condemns their actions and says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. You cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, the outside of your body, but inside you're full of extortion, self-indulgence. You're blind. First cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish that the outside might be cleansed also. Isaac Watts, the famous hymn writer, said, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. I remember being in Hungary when I was about 19, and uh, I think the pastor's brother was a filmmaker and he made this uh, at uh, Golgata Kedestenia, Gila Kazet, Calvary Chapel Church there in Budapest. Uh, the, the brother made this film where uh, he's cruising and he's getting dressed in the morning and he puts his white t-shirt on and there's this little tiny black dot, you know, in the middle of his shirt. And he's like, huh, that's odd. And so takes it off and you see him kind of scrubbing it a little bit and he puts it back on and he made it bigger. <laughs> and he's like, oh no. And so it's just the whole film, it shows him using every type of detergent and every type of soaking it. And I think he's baking it in the oven and all this stuff, you know, and like, and like by the end of it, it's just, it just covers his whole shirt. That's exactly what happens when we are like the Pharisees and we try to cleanse ourselves without letting Jesus, our high priest, cleanse us from the inside. From the inside, don't take matters into your own hands. Verse 15, and for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. 
I love that he is called the mediator. We always, at the pulse, we'll just spend time praying out the names of God in the scriptures. Here's a new one for you guys. You're our mediator. You're our mediator. That means the go-between. He's the go-between. He's the bridge builder between us and God for the redemption. Verse 16, for where there is a testament, there must also be necessity. Oh, excuse me. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Amen? Don't lie. You don't know what that means. I'm kidding. (laughs) When I teach this to the school of ministry, I always say that. Like, amen. And it's like, I don't know what that means. I had to like totally look it up and research it. Where there's a will or a testament. Frank, I'm sure you know what it means. I don't mean to insult. Where there's a will... A testament, a last testament before you die. There's the need of the death of the testator for those inheritances to be handed out. When you have a last will, you need three things. First of all, the testator or the benefactor. You need, secondly, the legacy or the beneficiary. Thirdly, you need the bequest. What does that mean? Well, here we go. Jesus is the testator. He's the one giving out the inheritance. The redeemed, you and me who are in Christ, the called, you're the legacy or the beneficiary, the redeemed. And the bequest that you receive is the blessing of eternal redemption. Christ died so that we could receive our inheritance of salvation. And people in the Old Covenant would be saved in the same way people in the New Covenant, by looking to the testator. A.T. Robinson, the Greek scholar, says, It is Christ's death that gives worth to the types that pointed to him. So then the atoning sacrifice of Christ is the basis of salvation for all who are saved before the cross and since. Because the Old Covenant saints and the New Covenant saints, we all look to the testator, to Jesus, and in his death, The will is set forth. Verse 17, for a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, note, even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. And by the way, testator is the same word for covenant. Therefore, note, even the first covenant was dedicated. Note, (laughs) no wonder that didn't make sense. Therefore, not. Even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept, all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. What is all that? Remember, that's the Xerox. The Xerox was sprinkled with blood. So what about the true and better? It's not Gatorade, I'll tell you that. Verse 21 says, Likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle, the vessels, and the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And with the, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. I just underline, if you've got a pen, this last phrase in verse 22. All things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness. The necessity of animal sacrifices established the old covenant and there's a necessity of a sacrifice to establish the new covenant. The life was in the blood. Leviticus tells us that don't drink the blood we're told for the life of the flesh is in the blood. 
And I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. Isn't it interesting? <laughs> that Clear back then, they didn't have microscopes or anything, and they would write down a phrase from God, like, the life is in the blood, and what the heck? You know? And then thousands of years later, we've got these things that can look way in, and you see, like, blood is alive. No? I'm like, word of God, speak. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you upon that altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood, Leviticus tells us, that makes atonement for the souls. That pays the ransom price for the souls. None of this forgiveness, none of this atonement, none of us being bought can happen without blood. The Jews have lost sight of that today. The man that's uh, leading the building of the new temple in Jerusalem, and he's working on that at the Temple Institute. I've been there three times in my life, and this last time I went, I got to have a tour of the Temple Institute by the man, the head of the Temple Institute. If my eschatology is correct, this dude's going to be right alongside the Antichrist building the third temple. But um, kind of interesting. Anyways, that's just my eschatology, but there it is. And here's the crazy thing. He mocked that God ever required blood for the sacrifice of sin. What is it? God likes lasagna rather than a veggie lasagna? He has to have hamburger in it? Come on. This is the head of the Temple Institute, and that's his reasoning. And we said, hey, how are you guys having your sins atoned for now? There's no sacrifices. Well, God doesn't desire blood. And, and we say, hey, what does your own law tell you? What is your own blood? And God never removed that need or that requirement. Yeah, I guess, I guess God never did remove that command. But, you know, whatever. I'm just going to harden my heart some more and just look at this robe. You know, it's like, okay. Anyways. <clears throat> William Cunnings was a historical theology professor in Scotland. And he wrote this. And I say it without any kind of hatred in my heart. But it's good for us to know. The author's insistence upon this principle of no forgiveness without the shedding of blood makes it hard to see how there can be any remission of sins granted through the unbloody offering of the Catholic Mass. There is in the Mass no real Christ, no suffering and no bleeding, and a bloodless sacrifice is ineffectual. The writer of the book of Hebrews says that apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. John says the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. Since admittedly there is no blood in the mass, it simply cannot be a sacrifice for sin. This is therefore an unscriptural practice which dishonors and denigrates the one perfect and all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ by presenting by representing it as repeated or rather caricatured daily and hourly by the juggling mummery of the priest. Why do we even say that? Because the Catholics believe in their own uh, encyclopedia. They say that every time they take a mass, Jesus's body appears and is killed again. His Literal his blood is what you're drinking. The priest makes that happen. The priest makes the bread his body. You're eating it. Jesus dies again and again and again and again. And that's just in one uh, parish, right? How about all over the world every time it's ever done? 
completely goes against the book of Hebrews, which the Holy Spirit saw fit to dedicate an entire letter to the Jesus sacrifice being better as it's once and for all. And he is our high priest. Don't rely on any other man. He's the mediator. He's the go-between. He's the bridge. And he offered the sacrifice one time for all. Any other reliance but upon that is a false gospel. It's a false gospel. And may we preach it in love. We can take our Catholic friends to the book of Hebrews and read it to them and tell them and beg with them to put their trust and their rest in the great high priest who doesn't need any under priests. He's the priest and he made the sacrifice once for all. Verse 23, therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in heaven should be purified with these blood, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should suffer often for sins, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year, with the blood of another, he then would have to suffer often since the foundations of the world, which is sadly what the Catholics make him do in their, in their faith, that he would suffer again and again and again and again. And Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that is not necessary. It was once at the end of the age, verse 26 says, he has appeared. Now notice, we, whenever you have repetitive language, it means the author is trying to get something a, 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 over to us. Verse 24 says, he appears in the presence of God. Verse 26 says, he has appeared to put away sins. Verse 27 says, it was appointed for men, as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, by the way, when you die, don't expect long tunnels or bright lights it's judgment time. For the Christians, the Bema Seat judgment. And then for the non-believer, it's the great white throne judgment at the end of the age. C.S. Lewis tells us what to expect the moment following your death. There will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we've uh, really chosen, whether we realize it or not. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. And so Christ was offered, verse 28, once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Three times in these final verses, we have the word once, once, once for all offered once to bear the sins of many. And three times in these final verses, we have him appearing, but Christ appeared in the presence of God for us. He has appeared to put away sin for us. He will appear a second time apart for salvation. And only those who have him as their high priest will be glad that he's appearing the second time. Hey, let's just bow our head and close our eyes. You can set your Bible aside. <clears throat> Lord God, we want to cry out for your Holy Spirit to impress into our hearts your word as just kind of had to rush these final powerful verses that, that were such gems of the chapter. 
And Lord, just cause us to focus on you. Cause us to hear your word just resonating in our heart. Lord, just if there's anyone in this room tonight who has never believed upon you so that their sins could be washed away, they've never yielded to you as their Lord, and they've never rested in you as their Savior, Lord God, would you just effectually call them tonight? Just call them to your salvation. Let them rest in you. Lord, you're, you're better than any man-made religion could ever dream up or think of, God. You, you encompass just all of truth and all that's needed and that you, Lord, are it. You're it. And so, Lord, we come to you through the veil that was your flesh. We come in to this new hope and we can come in boldly, it says. And if that's you tonight, we're... When you walk through those doors, you were not a Christian, but today you want to be a Christian. You want to have your sins washed away. We say, come on in with us by faith right now. Come in past the outer courts, through the sanctuary, and let's go into the Holy of Holies together and let's behold the beauty of God. Hebrews 10 says we can do that boldly because of what our high priest has done. We as Gentiles together, let's go in to what was entrusted to the Jews at first but has been made available to us through God's Son. Let's go in together and let's behold the beauty of the Lord. Let's behold His glory. Let's spend time in His presence. Let's walk with Him in the cool of the evening tonight. That's the crux of the matter, that we've been redeemed to fellowship with God through His Son. And Lord, anything that we've been trying to let be our atoning factors and that we would put rest in, any people that we just rest in, any systems that we rest in, Lord. Just tonight we come and we rest in Jesus Christ, the Jesus of the Bible, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, the one who came and became flesh and dwelt among us. His own did not receive him. Lord, we want to receive you tonight. You're welcome here. Move in our midst, move in our hearts, God. Focus our attention on you. Lord, once you've saved us, then you sent us out on a mission, God, and we want to be faithful to that mission. As we've heard about our high priest, as we've heard about blood, as we've heard about the pain you went through to shed blood so that we could be bought, Lord. And then you tell us to go out and tell others, Lord, we want to be obedient to your call, your commission, not your suggestion, your commission, Lord. So we just respond in worship. We respond in song. We respond saying, Jesus, have all of us tonight. Have all of us. Let's enter into the Holy of Holies. You may not know it, but we've been there. All night we've been there. He's made it available for us. Those of you that would respond maybe for the first time, come on in. Join us. Sing to him just with just the best faith you can muster. Let this just be a love song to him.
You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.